Uh, we're into a new series today called Faith for Life. This isn't, isn't a book I've written on the series. As, uh, I stole the title from this book. Um, with the series is based on Hebrews 11, looking at the cloud of witnesses. Heroes, ordinary heroes of the faith. The Christian life, if, if you've been living it for a while, you'll know is full of suffering, setbacks, struggles, and periods of stagnation. And we just felt we wanted to preach through the heroes in Hebrews 11. It's an Old Testament series, really, because we're going to be going into the Old Testament stories. So that we could be encouraged to hold on to the promises of God as we've just been singing. And be full of assurance and confidence in God. And so we're doing this series, Faith for Life. Can I recommend this book to you? Um, it's by Richard Koken. Um, it's an excellent book. We haven't based the series on the book. It's just a slightly different format. But it is an excellent read. Very accessible, lots of stories. Um, he does a great job of unpacking um, what faith um, looks like. And I thought it was a helpful type, so given that we're now Life Church Beckles, we want faith for life, don't we? Yeah. I wonder what your uh, favourite genre of film is. What's your favourite genre of film? Sci fi. Yeah. Do, do you watch Avatar? Yeah, it's a good film. Mine's biography. I love bi- biographical films. You know, you get to the end, I'm like, re- the exciting bit's the end bit, isn't it? You've heard their whole story, and all the way through, you're wondering how much of this is truth and reality, and I get my phone out, and they've got those really helpful websites. This was true in the film, and this wasn't. And they're really inspiring stories, isn't it? You get the photos at the end, you get to see who they really are, and it'll tell you a little line about what they're up to in their life now. I love biographical films. And in Hebrews 11, what we get is these mini-biographies, these mini kind of stories of these ordinary people who had faith in God. And today we're looking at Abel. And Hebrews 11 as a whole is like a jigsaw uh, puzzle of pieces, each of the stories being a piece about faith which reveals to us Jesus, which Hebrews 12 tells us that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, earlier in Hebrews 6.12, it encourages us to have full assurance of hope until the end. To be fully confident in God and his promises right up until the end. So that you won't be sluggish, kind of lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. So walk, as I've said, walking the Christian life can be hard work at times. Suffering, struggles, setbacks, stagnation. But we don't want to get lazy and sluggish in our walk with the Lord. We want to imitate and learn from those who trusted God, who had faith in him. And today we're going to learn from Abel. Just a bit of background about Abel. Abel's got a messy family history. don't know what your family history is like, but Abel's is messy. His mum and dad are called Adam and Eve. You might have heard of them. They made a big mess of trusting God. And that's Cain and Abel's family history. Their parents hadn't trusted God. They'd tried to go out on their own. They thought they knew better. They'd been punished and sent out of the Garden of Eden. But God's promise to Eve at the end of chapter 3 is that one of her offspring will crush the serpent's head. And of course, we know now, looking back, that that's Jesus. That on the cross, he crushed the serpent, the enemy, his works and his effects by dying on the cross, to putting his enemies to open shame publicly. So, shall we read together? We're in Genesis 4, verses 1 to 
to 16. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offspring. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell, was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, when they were in the field. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What's going on in this passage? On the face of it, um, God's acceptance of Abel and um, not of Cain looks arbitrary, doesn't it? It looks irrational. It looks capricious. It looks like Cain just caught God at a really bad moment. And he just kind of treated him worse than he did his brother. But Hebrews 11 brings some clarity on why God treats Cain differently to Abel. And it tells us that there are two ways that we can relate to God. We can relate to God the Abel way or the Cain way. And the difference is in the condition of Cain and Abel's hearts. It's about their attitudes towards God and their motivation for bringing the offering. Their family history, like we've heard, is a sinful mess. And Abel comes to God on the basis of his promise to his mum, Eve, trusting him, trusting God that he's merciful and good, to re- that God will redeem the situation. But Cain comes to, the, to God not trusting God not trusting the promise to his mum, Eve. He comes to kind of earn his way with God, to try and twist God's arm, to try and persuade him to bless him. Uh, It says this in um, Hebrews 11, so you can see the passage on the screen there. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation... Jane was talking a bit this morning in her prophetic word about accommodation. 
Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And there's uh, four things, I think, in uh, the Genesis passage that we can learn um, about faith from Abel. And the first is about being commended by faith. Um, it's important, isn't it, the need for commendation. to be. We all have a human desire to be approved of, to be accepted by others. And we appreciate it when we get uh, commendation, affirmation from those we ex- respect and value. Perhaps, you, perhaps you've had somebody at work who's um, kind of valued in their field, who knows what they're talking about, and they affirm and encourage you and approve and accept you and your work. That's, there's an, an importance to that, isn't it? Perhaps you can think of other people in your life who've kind of commended you, approved of you, and affirmed you. And that's been important to you, and you valued what they said. It's an echo of Eden, isn't it? Because in Eden, uh, humanity, Adam and Eve, were created, and God saw them. And what does he say? He says they're good. He approves of them. He accepts them. He commends them as good, and he blesses them gives them his approval. He walked with them in the garden and they flourished in that. And that acceptance, approval and commendation from God was lost in Eden for them and for us all when they sinned. When they decided not to have faith and trust in God and his desire to do them good. And Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden and sent out. And for each of us, whenever we We've had some moment in our life where we didn't trust God, where we weren't believing in him. And we feel a sense of distance from God. We experience a kind of separation from him. And the question that we, I think humanity searches for throughout life is how do we regain that sense of approval and acceptance and commendation when we have not trusted God and his goodness towards us and thought, better, thought we knew better ourselves? And Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel was commended by faith. By Abel trusted God, believed God was good and would be so to him. And so God commends Abel by his faith. On the other hand, Cain doesn't believe God is good. He doesn't trust him. He didn't think he was going to be good to him. But for us now, living the other side of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, we know even more than Abel did that from eternity past... The Father has commended, approved, and accepted of his Son. That for eternity, Jesus, the the Son of God, uh, received the commendation, approval, acceptance of the Father. And when, by faith, we follow and trust in Jesus and believe God and his kindness and his goodness and his mercy towards us, we receive, by faith, God the Father's commendation, approval and acceptance of the Son for ourselves. And what Jesus is belongs to us. And we receive the approval and acceptance that we all look for. But it's possible, like Jane was prophesying earlier, for us to still kind of look for acceptance and approval from others. And to be at the mercy of other people's opinions. Isn't it? When people kind of say that negativity and it drip drips away. And we lose our sense of self-worth 
and it rises and falls on other people's acceptance of us. And especially with social media these days, somebody can like you, literally with a button. They can approve of you. And you can see it. I've got this many people who approve of me, and this many people don't approve of me. I love this uh, quote out of this book. It says this. Um, Their faith was commended by God. Being commended or approved by God is actually our greatest human need. But this approval is not something superficial like a round of applause or a like on Facebook. This word commended conveys the idea of a conclusive legal defence in court. If God testifies that we are acceptable to him, then our access to the blessings of his presence are secured forever. Indeed, when we know we're accepted and cherished by God, we can endure the rejection and scorn of others instead of desperately chasing their approval. Instead of desperately chasing their approval. So by faith, folks, are you trusting by faith, in the commendation, approval and acceptance that is Jesus's for yourself? Do you know that the Father sees you just as he sees the Son? That you are as accepted and as approved of and as commended as much as he is? Do you know that? By faith, if you receive that, you need not worry about the opinions of others um, as much. Secondly, commended by faith, we're also, we live by faith. So both Cain and Abel, they bring these offerings, these gifts to God. They've sacrificed keeping either um, crops or flocks for themselves, and they brought them to God. Why? Um, well, there was some sense that something needed to be made up for. Adam and Eve are their parents. They live with this cloud over their lives. There's a situation to be made up for. There's a sinful mess to be put right There's something to redeem. They need to atone for the past. It's part of human nature, isn't it? When we do something wrong, we feel remorse for something, and then we try to make up for it and redeem the situation. Once when I was at uni, I was in a bar, I turned round, and I knocked somebody's drinks clean out of their hand, all over the floor. And uh, it would have been odd for me to say, sorry about that, (laughs) just carry on walking. So I said, I'm really sorry, is it right if I buy you that round again? Why did I do that? Not because I'm a really nice bloke, just because there was something to be made up for, wasn't there? My mistake had cost him his round of drinks. And when you're a student relying on a loan, that's quite a valuable thing. Uh, and these drinks, well, you could see the look on his face. Um, they, were, they were an important thing to him. So I used my hard-earned student loan to make up for my bad, to redeem the situation and atone for my error. I brought an offering, a gift, a sacrifice. And that's part of our everyday Life, isn't it? We all make all kinds of sacrifices all the time of our money, our time, our effort, our emotion, our heartache for a multitude of reasons, aims and hopes. And the difference between Abel and Cain's offering reveals these two different ways that we can live. But on the surface, they look the same. They both brought an offering to the Lord. They both brought an offering Outwardly, they appear the same, but their roots are very different. Their roots are very 
different. Cain's life is characterized by unbelief. He doesn't trust, trust God to redeem his family situation. He sacrifices, brings his offering to twist God's arm, persuade him to bless him and to earn his way out of the situation. I don't need you, God. I can sort this myself with this offering. Abel's life is characterized by faith. He sacrifices, trusting God to redeem his family's mess based on the promise that God made to his mum, Eve, simply because that's what God's like. God is, Abel knew, God is merciful and good, and I trust him to sort the situation. And on that basis, he brought his offering. So how do we make up for, atone for, and redeem the situation of our own lives and the, own, the, messes, the mess that we get ourselves into? Because we can behave like Cain or Abel, can't we? We can sacrifice uh, in life like Cain does, or we can sacrifice in life like Abel does. The difficulty is, is that it all looks the same on the surface. We can live life sacrificing to earn a sense of self-respect, a sense of self-worth, earn a sense of achievement and success in life. A kind of attitude which says, if there's a God, he'll look kindly on me because of what I've done. Look at what I've done. Surely he'll think of me as good in the end because look what I've done. The respect and worth I've achieved in life. I don't need God. I'll get by on my own efforts. Or we can live like Abel and sacrifice and offer our lives as a gift to God because we trust him to sort our situation out for us because he's merciful and good. And he's our only hope in this mess that we've got ourselves into. For us now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that in Hebrews it tells us that Jesus, dying on the cross, offered his body, his life, as a one-time sacrifice for all sin. To make up for, to atone for, to redeem our situation. And so now we bring our lives as a gift and offering, a sacrifice to God, not to redeem the situation by our own efforts, but by faith. Trusting God has sorted it through Jesus' death on the cross because he's merciful and good to us. And so it says in Romans 12, that really famous verse that you may well know, I appeal or urge to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, because God is merciful, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what's the heart behind the sacrifices that you make in life? What's the heart behind the sacrifices you make in life? When you give your time and energy, your effort, your heartache, your emotion, are you coming kind of contractually to kind of twist God's arm, persuade him to bless you? Are you coming um, to him uh, in that way to earn your way out the mess? Or are you trusting God that he has redeemed you through Jesus as a sacrifice and therefore give your time, money, effort, emotion, heartache in response to the fact that God is already merciful and good and you know it and you're believing him for it? Because the truth is you can give the largest sum of money away, you can serve the most in church life, you can worship with the most vigorous passion, You can work the hardest, share the widest, but if your heart is full of unbelief, if you're just coming to God to twist his arm, 
because you don't believe that he's really merciful and good, he'll be offended and he won't accept it. So, what's the motivation behind the, the things that you sacrifice in life? The third thing is, master sin by faith. Uh, God mercifully warns Cain in the passage, doesn't he? Uh, when he brings his offering, he says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you. And that language has family history, because that's what God said to Eve. Um, it's, I, it's against you, it's going to devour you, but you must rule over it or master it. When Eve sinned, God said to her that her desire would be for her husband, i.e. she would be against him. She would want to manipulate and control him. Um, when I was young, we had a cat. Um, and when he was a little kitten, he used to crouch and hide under the stairs. And when we'd come down the stairs, he'd jump up from out behind the stairs and scrape down our legs and jump at us, which when he was a kitten wasn't a problem. When he grew into a cat, was a little bit more... Um, aggressive than you'd want um, but you can make out like he's not a big deal and sin is like that it wants to make you think it's just a little kitten hiding beneath the stairs crouching ready to jump up at you and give you um, no problem really at all but just playful fun but God warns Cain that sin's not like that it's, it's a much bigger deal than it's made out to be in fact that thing that you think is a kitten lying beneath the stairs crouching waiting to jump up at you is actually a lion and it's waiting to devour you it's against you it will master you and it will rule you it will manipulate and control you God's saying to Cain it's a lion it's not a kitten don't treat it lightly and Cain treats it like a kitten and the lion roars sin masters Cain And he murders his brother in anger. Abel, in contrast, is aware from his family's past that sin, not trusting God, is a dangerous thing. That it's a lion, not a kitten. And that it had bad consequences for his parents. And he's wary of it. So for us now, uh, living after Jesus' life, death and resurrection, we read passages like this in Romans 6, which is echoing exactly what God said to Cain, says this in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, by faith, trusting God's mercy and goodness. We died with Jesus on the cross. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, the lion would be tamed, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, so it wouldn't control us, master us, rule us, manipulate us so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions it's just like to Cain he's warning you don't let it rule you don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness i.e. Don't be like Cain's attitude of, I don't need God, I'll make it on my own, I'll earn my redemption and atone for myself. But present, sacrifice, offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members, your body, your time, your effort, your money to God as instruments for righteousness. 
by faith, trusting God. For sin will have no dominion over you. It won't control you, it won't rule you. Since you're not under law, but you're under grace. I.e. by faith you've received God's mercy, his forgiveness, and experienced uh, his goodness. See, God didn't come to Adam and Eve, or Cain, wagging the finger. And uh, I wonder how we see God when we experience his discipline or when we just expect, or when we know we've done something wrong, what in your mind is God doing? And I think for a lot of us, God's doing this. He's wagging his finger at you, shaking his head, the frown of disapproval on you. That's, I think, how often we think of what God is thinking or doing. Does he do that to Adam and Eve? Does he do that to Cain? No. What does God do in the passage? He comes asking questions. He says to Adam and Eve in chapter 3, Where are you? What have you done? And he says to Cain in this passage, Where is Abel your brother? Does God know where Abel is? Yeah. He knows exactly what's happened. He's just murdered his brother. Is God shaking his head? wagging his finger, frown of disapproval, saying, Cain, where's your brother Abel? What have you done? He asks a question of him. And friends, what is God asking you questions about? He's not coming to you. If, you, if there's boundaries you're crossing that you know you shouldn't be, maybe an attitude in life that you're having that you think, I just shouldn't be having that attitude or a way you're behaving that you know you shouldn't be. God does not come to you wagging his finger, shaking his head, frown of disapproval, but he does come and ask you questions. Why are you doing that? What have you done? Because he wants you to draw, draw you to the realisation of what you're doing, of your unbelief, of your lack of trust in his mercy and his goodness. So in what ways in your life do you not really believe that God wants the best for you? Like Adam and Eve, do you believe that really God is withholding something from you? Just like, that's what the serpent said to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Did God really say that? Surely not. He didn't say don't do that, did he? That doesn't, surely it won't make be that big a deal. In what ways are you not trusting him to sort out the mess and trying to sort it out yourself. Perhaps there's boundaries God's put in place for your good that you're ignoring. Because essentially you think, you know better, God's withholding something good from me. So I'm going to do it anyway. And God today is mercifully asking you questions. He's warning you, saying, don't do it. Sin is crouching at the door, waiting to devour you. It's a lion. It's not a kitten. He says, trust me, master it and rule over it. Otherwise, it will master you and it will rule over you. Don't believe the lie. Master and rule over sin by faith, trusting God is good. And the things that he puts in place in your life are for your good. Because God is always working for the good of those who love him. Know that verse in Romans? God is always working for your good if you're one of those 
be loving. And the final one is justified by faith. Legacy is a big deal these days, isn't it? There's lots of talk about what someone's legacy will be. Perhaps you're at that stage in life where you're thinking about what your legacy is going to be. Thinking about what your life will count for. And both Genesis and Hebrews tell us that Abel's life and his death have a legacy. They count for something. It says in verse 10, God says this to Cain, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There's a picture here of Abel's blood crying out for revenge, for retribution, for justice, for something to be done about this sin, this evil, this murder. All the injustices in life that we see around us in the news and in the world, in our daily lives, there's a sound that comes out from them to the ears of God. Something must be done about this. This has to be dealt with. God is a God of justice, isn't he? He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. And his love means that he's both merciful and just at the same time. And he cannot ignore and overlook the injustices in the world. He doesn't overlook or ignore Abel's death. There must be justice. And so there's a punishment from Cain, isn't there? He's sent out to wander the earth. The mercy of God's protection is over him, though. As God marks him so that he's protected and not killed. Because God wants to be merciful to us, doesn't he? But our sin, our unbelief, our attempts at earning God's approval, our attempts to make our own way in life, to be independent from God, and all the consequences of that must be dealt with. Because quite often we think about out there in the world, all those injustices, what is God going to do about it? God has done something about it in Jesus on the cross. And if it isn't covered by that, he will deal with it. There will be a day of judgment that comes when he deals with all the injustice. But there's also the question of the injustice that we've done, the ways that we've lived our lives. And there must be a consequence for that. There must be justice. So for us now living... After Jesus' death and resurrection, knowing more than Abel, we read verses like this in Romans. Romans three twenty-three to 26 says, you, you might recognize this, for all have sinned. All of us at some point have had some moment of unbelief, trusting in ourselves, twisting God's arm, persuading him to bless us and be good to us, not trusting that he's merciful and good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's not because you brought a gift. God has gifted it to you by faith. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood, to be received by faith, so that God might be the just and the justifier, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What he's saying in that passage is this. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God's mercy and justice meet. That Jesus, who has enjoyed the Father's commendation from eternity past, lives a life of faith, trusting the Father. He masters and rules over sin, and he dies on the cross only to be raised to life 
justified. So that we, by faith in Jesus, can enjoy the commendation of God, the Father, so that we can live by faith in him, so that we can master sin and rule over it and be justified before the Father. The Lord Jesus hung there on the cross in our place. His bloody body mangled, blood dripping to the ground, receiving the punishment that we deserved for our sin. And now Jesus' blood, just like Abel's, cries up from the ground for us, and it makes a different sound to Abel's. The sound of Jesus' blood says, justice has been met. Justice has been accomplished by his death on the cross. There's no need to punish them. They're forgiven. There's no need. They're redeemed. Their messy situation has been sorted. They have been trusted me. They're recipients of my mercy and goodness and my forgiveness. Jesus' blood cries out on our behalf. And so, friends, there's a day coming when blood will cry out for us. And either it will be the blood, sweat and tears of our own efforts, making it on our own, the sacrifice of self-dependence, or it will be the blood of Jesus shed for you, crying out, forgiven, redeemed, atoned for, sinless, perfect, righteous, And we get to choose whether to receive by faith the cry of Jesus' blood for us on our behalf or we can try and make it on our own and see how we fare. At the end of the story, if the band want to get ready, we're going to sing in a minute. At the end of the story, God's mercy continues on for Cain, doesn't it? Cain has murdered his brother, Abel, but what does God do? He sends him out and Cain goes, what am I going to do? I'm going to wander the earth. People are going to kill me. I'm defenceless. Even though he's not remorseful about what he's done, but he understands that God can do something about it. And God puts a mark on Cain and sends him out to protect him. Even though he punishes Cain, he still pursues Cain and gives him a mark to protect him, despite Cain's attitude towards him. And wherever you're at... Maybe you're remorseless. Maybe you you just kind of, God's not a factor in your life. Perhaps you've got friends and family who have turned their back on God and walked away. God is a God of mercy and goodness. And I think he'd say to some of us, his mark is on us. And his mark is on those in our life who've perhaps walked away from him. He is mercifully always pursuing us. And he's mercifully pursuing them. Continue on praying for them.